Good evening. I got all lined up and I thought, I'll just walk right down that center aisle and then I'll end up where I need to be. And that would not have worked that well. Um, uh, my name is Scott Beyer. I uh, preach for the Eastland Congregation in Louisville. Thank you so very much for the invitation to join you during your summer series. I, I love the theme of this. I just love the idea of taking something that we, we do on a regular basis, sing songs, and th- what a helpful way to make you think about the words that you're singing. I just love that idea. Uh, and so uh, the, the fact that I got asked to, to do this part, though, was the one I was less uh, happy about. Um, because it's such an upbeat song, right? I mean, higher ground, this idea of setting your eyes above and thinking about the things that are in the future and how good God is and I want to dwell above it all and those Satan's darts at me are hurled. That's, it's the negative, right? It's, it's, it's the downer part of the song. But as Roger said, that's also real life. I mean, if you're going to talk about Christianity with any sort of practicality, you're going to have to start talking about the down stuff, the setbacks, the problems, the heartaches. Um, that's where people actually live. And if you didn't live there, I might add, I don't think you'd seek higher ground as much. I think if we did not have these darts, if we did not have these trials and pains and heartaches and, and difficulties, if we didn't see the way things ought to be, and then see that things are very much not the way they ought to be, you would not yearn, as Hebrews says, for another country. So there is, right in the beginning, a little bit of a gift, right? The, the gift of trials and heartaches is, it reminds you this world is not my home, which is a whole nother song. There is something very powerful about understanding this idea that here is not perfect. I remember going uh, uh, to a funeral one time, and somebody made the statement about the person who had died, and they died at an an earlier age. It wasn't a ripe old age. It was an unexpected thing. And somebody said, well, you know, I mean, it's just the way things are meant to be. And and I thought, no, that's not true at all. I, I I just wholly disagree with that statement. That is not the way things are supposed to be. In fact, that's the whole problem with it. That as we look around, things are not the way they ought to be. And if that ever upsets you, or if you're me, it, I find myself sometimes just being very angry even about it. I want you to understand that's a righteous anger. There's a lot of unrighteous anger in the world. And a lot of times you can be angry for the wrong reasons. But I think it's okay for you to be angry when you look and you say, this is not the way it ought to be. We shouldn't live in a world where people die at a young age. We shouldn't live in a world where there are children that starve. We shouldn't live in a world with death, disease, and pain. That's not what God intended, and I know it because I read my Bible. And you don't have to get very far in the Bible to see the world that God did intend. Because in the very beginning, what was the world he made? It was, quite literally, paradise. And so, while we're talking about this, yes, Roger gave me the downer one, but I will, I will say it's also the one that... that makes you get up in the morning and say, I want to live this way for Christ because I want to be where it's not like this anymore. That is the juxtaposition 
of Christianity for us. So I've got a couple of questions for you tonight that we're going to kind of drive through because ultimately this this, uh, statement from the song is is actually rooted in biblical text and we're going to look at several different pieces of the text that connect to it. But one of the things that I like to do for my own personal Bible study, a way that helps me to read more deeply, is to ask questions. And so when we start talking about the idea of Satan hurling darts or or arrows at us, my very first question is, why? Why is he hurling arrows at me? It feels very personal, right? it, it, It is, why have I been chosen for this suffering, and in particular when you are in the middle of some sort of trial or suffering or setback, it feels very personal. It's one thing to talk about people getting cancer. It's another thing when it's your loved one who just got that diagnosis. It's a very different thing when you're the one sitting in the doctor's office or in the waiting room waiting for them to get out of surgery. It's, it feels very intentionally aimed at me. So the question that we ask then is why is Satan hurling arrows at me? And here's my answer to you. He isn't. Not in the way you might think. See, it turns out that when we think about shooting arrows, we tend to think of it more like that first picture. Let me back up for a second. Aiming, right? We're going to we're going to get the crosshairs on it. But that's not the type of arrows that were shot in battle back in the time period in which these things are being written. And in first century Roman Empire, when Rome went to battle and they sent out the archers, if you look at the picture, look at where all the archers are looking. They're looking up. Because that's how you shot arrows. You didn't shoot one arrow. Nobody's worried about an archer. It is a fleet of archers. It is a platoon of them. They are all lined up, and you've, if you've ever watched any sort of movie or reenactment, that's how there's a ton of them, and they all, in unison, aim for the sky and fire. And when they do that, here's the funny thing. They're not really aiming for one person in particular. And I've got biblical proof for that. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 34 In the story where King Ahab dies, it describes the death of King Ahab and it says that he went out to battle and God told him what was going to happen and yet he disguised himself and so he goes out to battle anyways and all these different things happen. But then it says he he had disguised himself so they wouldn't know he was the king and yet an archer drew his bow at random and the arrow shoots up through the sky, and comes down and hits the king. And they take him away and he dies. See, that's the way it was done. Arrows are shot in what's called a volley. And you don't aim for somebody in particular. You are aiming for two things. You're aiming for a generic, for the troops, right? For the enemy. And you're aiming where... You want the enemy to seed ground. If we want to shoot for the area that, ironically, we actually want to have. We want to get you, as the enemy, to back up. Because if you see a bunch of archers on the enemy side stand up and pull back, well, the easiest way to deal with that is just back up. Right? Move away from the target area. 
Right? I, I, I have uh, little kids who will wind up to throw a baseball at me, and their control of velocity is not always accurate. Let me put it that way. And so when I have one of the little ones, like, I say, toss me the ball, and they go, like this, I will kind of back up, because I know by backing up, I give myself a little bit of distance. Satan is not aiming for you. He's aiming for the Lord's army. And he wants to take the battleground. The reason he's aiming for you is because of who you belong to. And I want that to give you some confidence. And I want it to remind you that when you go through these things, the reason you're going through these things is because of who you belong to. And that is exactly why the apostles, when they were beaten for their beliefs, what does the scripture say they did in Acts? They went on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Satan doesn't care about you. You think it's personal. I think it's personal. I'm telling you what I do myself. When you're going through a trial, you tend to think, this is about me. It has nothing to do with you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care whether you're happy or sad. In fact, if happy would take you away from Jesus, he'd happily make you happy. And there are many people that prosperity is the key to getting them to leave Jesus. If he could write a check that would get you to leave Jesus, he would happily do it. He doesn't care whether you're happy or sad. He just wants you to give up the ground. He wants you to leave the army. He wants you to become a deserter. That's what he cares about. You are not important to Satan. Now compare that to how the Scriptures talks about how God thinks about you. The very hairs of your head are numbered. That he knows the, when even a sparrow falls, and yet he says you are of greater value than these. Satan, it's not personal. He has, nothing, he has no care about you. All he wants to do is hurt your father. And you are a tool in order for him to do that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse I have read so many times. I I suspect many of you have done the same thing. I'm going to give you a perspective that maybe you haven't thought of. That's, That's all my goal ever is with the sermon, is maybe give you a perspective that you've not thought of about something that's always been there. I used to work at a zoo. And so um, the best thing that ever came out of uh, me working at a zoo was I got all of these different experiences with a lot of different animals, and it was a lot of fun. I did not end up becoming a zookeeper because zookeepers um, are a weird breed. And, um, and I didn't think that I was weird. Other people disagree, and I, so I moved on to other things in my life. But one of the things that I got to do is work with the big three, lions and tigers and bears. And one of the things that you learn about lions in particular is lions are not as, um, they're not as regal as sometimes you think, okay? Um, the average lion, when it goes hunting, it, I know what National Ge- Geographic has shown you, 
I understand that, that you get the gazelle and there's the hunting and all those things. But look, lions in general, they are opportunistic hunters. And in fact, you can add to that, they're opportunistic hunters who are opportunistic scavengers. They are just as happy to carry on dead stuff as they are to kill live stuff. They're not, in general, wildly bold. They go after the weak, the sick, the lame, the dead, the dying. And that's what they bring back. Lions, as a general rule, they are apex predators, meaning they're at the top of the food chain, but not because they're such great hunters and so great at everything. It's because they'll kill anything they can kill. They'll take it and they'll eat a bird, and it could be half rotting, and they'll go, hey, cubs, let's take this. It doesn't matter. Satan is that. He is an opportunistic hunter and scavenger. So as you think about that, I want you to understand that what he's doing, his game plan is, is pretty simple. He sends volleys of setbacks and trials and darts and arrows. And he volleys them towards the Lord's army. And he doesn't have to particularly aim, right? He just shoots a bunch of them. And then what does he wait to see? Who gets winged? Who got hit by that one? Who feels like giving up? Who starts running away to desert? Which, by the way, if you start deserting from the army, if you were a pack of gazelles and you're the gazelle that runs away from the other gazelles, you know what we call that? Lunch. That's what you are. You're lunch. All he has to do is to volley these setbacks these heartaches, these trials, these evils in the world that we all hate, volley them up, and sometimes you get hit, and sometimes it's the guy next to you, and then he just waits to see how we react. And that's the real issue. How are you going to react to what Satan says and to what Satan does? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If there were any direct text that the, the verse from higher ground is taken from, it's, it's likely Ephesians 6, 16 that the writer had in mind. Where he discusses this idea of the, the arrows of the evil one. But in that text, he says, what should you do? Take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith, but which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We're going to talk about extinguishing, and we're going to talk about flaming, but right now, I just want to talk about the shield. Because the antidote to the arrows is the shield. It is the shield of faith. There are several things I want you to understand. One, if you want to handle the trials, the heartaches, and the pains that the devil will throw at us, you need to stay in formation. Now, the Romans made it famous. But interestingly, the picture I have up there is much more like the way the Spartans did it. The Spartans had more of a round shield. The Romans had this big kind of rectangular shield. Both of those are just visual aids to kind of help you. But every army understood that the value of the shield was primarily to stop the arrow. And the thing with the arrow is, it, it's going to come in a volley, right? So you stop it, 
by squaring up and building a formation together. Now, the Romans, they turtled up. They were the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They would have shields in front and shields over the top, and they would build this formation that would, whenever the arrows were shot, they could cry out a word, and everybody would cluster around, and they would build this formation. The Spartans did it a little bit different because they had a different state shield, but the concept's the same. All of us are going to gather together, my shield next to your shield, and we get pulled tighter together because of it. The arrows bring us together. Are you seeing the connection? What the devil wants is for your reaction to be, here come the arrows, I'm gone. But the one thing Romans didn't have was any sort of protection over their back. But if you and I will bring it in closer... And I will add, if you've ever tried to stand, I did this with somebody once where we tried to stand to kind of like mimic in our mind what it would look like. We had a VBS thing and we were, you know, doing VBS-y thingies. And, and so we stood really close. And you realize, like, when I was standing next to him trying to pretend how close you would be, I could smell what he had for lunch. Like, I could, I, could tell, I, could, I could sense his breath. I could tell whether he'd put on deodorant. Like, we're that close. And it's, it's uncomfortable. That's the thing I realized is this is a guy that I like and we're friends, but it's uncomfortable because I'm an American. And Americans are independent. And we do our own thing. And we live our own way. And you don't tell me how to live my life. But Jesus absolutely tells me how to live my life. And I'm going to have to start getting uncomfortably close to other Christians in order to do what he says. So you're going to have a tendency in the good times. As a Christian, I think this is the pattern, at least in America. I don't know if it's this way in other cultures, but I certainly think it is here in America. You're going to have this tendency as an American Christian to during the normal times, you just kind of live your independent American life and I kind of take it or leave it with the church, right? I kind of have a, a space bubble level of closeness with the brethren. But if you do that during the good times, you know what you're going to be instinctively prone to do when things get bad? Try and make a one-man turtle. And that won't work. You need to start working hard. This is my advice. Working hard on being uncomfortably cl close to Christians now. And one way you can do that is when you see the arrows coming towards them, you pull in. Because then you will have built the instinct, and that's what you need on the battlefield. You need the instinct of pulling in close. The other is, I need you to trust the battle plan. If, if this is going to work, you can't think, oh no, we're losing. It's the Leonidas statement that we shall fight them in the shade. That it doesn't matter how many arrows are fired, it doesn't matter how much it darkens the sky, our battle plan will win. In Revelation, if you turn over to Revelation chapter 2, and you look down in verse 10, this is uh, what is said to the church in Smyrna. Revelation 2 verse 10, it says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Anytime you're commanded to do something, by the way, I will tell you that's because you will not instinctively do it. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. When you suffer, you tend to fear. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I'm going to summarize what Smyrna was told. Trust the battle plan. Yes, it's going to be hard, and yes, it's going to be ugly, and you are going to wonder how this ever, ever, ever turns out. But do you know that has always been God's plan? It's not the story of Goliath and David. It's the story of David and Goliath. Goliath wasn't the good guy who beat a little puny bad guy. How does God do it? He always does it the other way. He always takes the little guy and uses him to beat the big guy. It's the story of Gideon and his men who he gathers an army and God says, there's only one problem, there's too many. I'm going to need some of you to go home because I don't want anybody to think you won this battle because you had such an imposing army. God has always always made it so that he is glorified, which means we've got to trust his plan. And so as you go through life, whatever you do, do not quit. Be faithful unto death. If you are young, you have so much suffering ahead of you. I wish I could say it as a joke, like I want to just like joke about it and go, if you're young, you have so much suffering out of you, but like I can't even do that anymore. If you're young, you have decades of just heartache ahead of you. But look, I want you to talk to the old Christians, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to summarize what they will tell you. They will say, yeah, it was hard, and we went through this, and we went through this, and we lost a child, and then we dealt with cancer, and then uh, my husband lost his job, and, and, and the church had trials at times, and there was, do you remember that time when there was that big split in the church, and we just wondered, how are we ever going to get through this? The devil got right in the middle of us, and they'll tell you about all those things, and then they'll tell you, God is good, because that was, that's the lesson they learned at the end of it. But you don't get that until you go through the suffering. So trust the battle plan. The Lord will see you through. Be faithful every step of the way. And I can guarantee you, you will get to the day of judgment. And you will think about back on your life and all that you went through. And there will not be a single one of us that says, it wasn't worth it. In fact... I think the reality is is that when we're facing the king and we're seeing him with our own eyes for the first time, I don't know that I'll even be thinking about any of those things. It will be such a memory of the past that I will have just, it will just have whisked away. It will be worth it. And the last thing I want you to know is I want you to know your equipment. In Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm not going to spend time going into this in detail because that's a whole sermon or set of sermons unto itself, is the equipment that God gives us, the armor of God. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 18, is laid out all of these various pieces of equipment. And look, if you're going to go into battle, you might want to know how to take the safety off. Just a wild idea. There's a reason that when soldiers are trained, they train them how to clean their firearms. And they they tell them to clean your kit. 
you take care of your stuff. You become so familiar with your stuff that you know exactly where it is at any moment. I have a friend who's an electrician, and, and, and he acts this way. In the, in, he has a tool belt, and so he'll go into to a job. And I was watching him one day because he's working at my house because I have a friend who's an electrician. And, and I noticed something. He was looking in the works right here, and he would reach into his belt for something, and never once did he look at his tool belt. And he would pull out the tool that he needed, he would use it, and then he would instinctively put it right back where it had been. And when he finished a job, it was the exact opposite of when I finished a job. I don't know about any of you that are weekend warriors like me, but when I start a job, my, my garage looks one way, and when I finish a job, it looks very different. But not my friend Mike. He started a job with a perfectly clean kit. And he ended the job with all of his tools exactly where they should be. Why? Because he's familiar with them and he knows them. He knows what he needs, he knows where he's going to get it, and he knows how to go from there. That's what I want you to do with the armor that God has given you. I want you to become so familiar with the helmet of salvation that you know it's there even though you don't always feel it on. Right? Have you ever worn sunglasses so long that you forgot you were wearing them and then asked somebody, where your sunglasses were, asking for a friend, right? It's because you had become so unconsciously used to it being there that it was just there. I want you to become so in tune with the idea that you are saved, that no matter what this world throws at you, you are saved, that when it does throw stuff at you, the brain bucket's on and you're safe. The next question I have for you is, why are the arrows on fire? Because it, it is specific. It's not just arrows. It's flaming arrows. And that just seems redundant, doesn't it? I mean, he's already shooting things at me. Why does he have to light it on fire as well? Well, the reason for it is because of what fire arrows do. Fire arrows are meant to not just kill one person, but create indiscriminate destruction. That's the goal. You shoot fire arrows so that even if it doesn't hit the guy, it hits his farm and burns down all the wheat. So that even if it doesn't hit the guy, it lights his pants on fire and he has to run and find a creek. So that even if it doesn't kill him, He's now on fire and it hurts. This is the way the devil works. Turn in Revelation. Turn in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 17. Revelation, chapter 12, verse 17, just a little bit of very quick context. This is a summer, summary of the, the battle Satan has had throughout all of time that he wants to stay in heaven and God says, you don't get to be here. And then eventually God wins the argument by sending Jesus to die. And so in Revelation chapter 12, Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead, and Satan is cast out. He is no longer allowed through heaven's gates. And he's cast down to the earth. And in verse 17 it says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. So he's not just mad at Jesus, he's mad at, at um, the the people of faith that Jesus came from and the children that will come after. all of, He says, I went off to make war with the rest of our children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
Why is Satan doing what he's doing? Because he's mad. You ever been around somebody who's just like, not like, I'm mad. I mean, sees red, bad things, terrifies you. You see it in their eyes. They see murder in their eyes, and you wonder what will happen next. These kind of road rage cases that you hear of where somebody has just lost their mind, they're so angry, that's Satan. That is the great dragon, and he's just mad and spitting nails. His goal is as much unhappiness as possible because if he can't be in heaven, he doesn't want anybody else there. If he can't be happy and have what he wants, he doesn't want anybody else to be happy and have what they want. It is indiscriminate destruction. And so stop trying to make sense of it. That's the lesson of the flaming arrow. Stop trying to make sense of it. Because that's, that's what logical people do when illogical things happen, right? Have you ever, have you ever run into somebody who was just a wicked person? I, we don't talk this way that often, but we as Christians believe in good and evil, and it also means we believe that there are wicked people. So if there are wicked people and you run into a wicked person, have you ever tried to talk sense into a wicked person and then wondered, like, why are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense. You know why it doesn't make any sense? Because you have things like honesty and sincerity and truth. And these are bedrocks and foundations to how you're living and you're trying to live by a code of ethics. What if I threw the ethics out? What if I didn't care about truth? Then all of a sudden everything makes sense that the devil is doing. He's not you and I, but just on a bad day. He's not a good-hearted devil who just kind of made some bad choices along the way and ended up on the wrong side of history. He's evil. He's wicked. He's malicious. And he hates. And you and I are collateral damage. But that's why we have hope. Because hope is the thing you anchor yourself to when everything seems illogical, isn't it? Like when you're going through really hard times and it's like you're trying to make sense of it and there's nothing sensible about it. How do I even process this? And the answer is you process it through hope. You process it through the lens of understanding he may be the prince of the power of air. That's a, that's a title given to the devil, the prince of the power of air. And air is wildly powerful. I have seen the weather reports too. But then after the tornadoes have wreaked their havoc with the air, what do they do? They're gone. Hope. I want you to live your life with hope. This too shall pass. It is worth it. It's not logical what he's doing. The next thing is that it simply it requires less accuracy. And we talked about this a little bit already, but 1 Peter chapter 4, down in verse 12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among, us, among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. One great thing... If you could say there's anything great about what the devil does is that he's only got so many tricks. 
he is, he's not coming up with any new ideas. What's happening to you is what he has used in the past. It is just the way that he works. And we're going to look at some of those specific arrows and things that he handles and hands to us very soon. But the other thing that fire arrows do is they keep you busy. They keep you busy putting out spot fires. And I don't know, maybe some of you have had this experience. Uh, my wife... My wife and I have eight kids, which is, whenever I say it out loud, sounds like a really big number. It's not. It's normal. It's just normal for me. It's very normal for us. But she sometimes tries to clean the house, and it's a little bit like brushing your teeth with Oreos. You know, you can be as vigorous as you want, but you're really not making a ton of progress sometimes. That's what it can feel like if you're trying to undo all the things that the devil does in your life, is, is you end up feeling like, I'm just going from one spot fire to another, to another, to another. And you get to the end of the day, and you say, I was busy the whole day, but I got nothing done. Nobody else knows that feeling, right? See, it's such a, hu such a human thing to get to the end of the day and say, I was busy all day, but I, I don't know what I got done. Look, when you look over in 2 Timothy... 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God um, <clears throat> not to wrangle about words, which is useless, and leads to the ruin of the hearers. The devil wants nothing more than for you and I to sit and wrangle about things that don't matter. Our congregation is having to make some decisions, great decisions, wonderful decisions about whether or not to build a new building, all sorts of things like that. Like, do we stay where we are? Do we need to expand? Do, all sorts of problems. They're good problems, but if you're going to build a building, it's a problem, isn't it? And you know what? We, and we've had these meetings already, and, and I've got to hand it to our elders. They're so good at this. They've already said in these meetings, look, we're not going to get caught up in so many details that we end up arguing over each other, with each other over what color paint we're going to put on the walls so that when we're done, it's an empty building. But boy, we love the color. It's useless, right? And sometimes we can get to, to bickering over useless, meaningless things. And you know what? The devil's super happy. He, he is absolutely pleased if he can just build a cat fight. And he can just get people to argue and bicker and wrangle with each other over things that don't matter. Folks, we have one job and one job only. Get to heaven and take as many people as we can with us. Anything that gets in the way of that is the devil's work. It is that simple. And I know... And I know this because I've heard guys say that in sermons. And I thought in my head, it's an oversimplification. I don't think it is anymore. I really don't think it is anymore. I really think it is that simple. I want to make sure that I get to heaven and I'm trying as hard as I can to do whatever it takes to get other people there too. And anything that keeps us off vision with that is missing the point. Do not let him turn you into a firefighter instead of a soldier. It is not 
our job to make this world perfect. It is our job to get to heaven and get people through this world. Now, very quickly, we're going to cover a, a list of things. And the list of things are not, it's not a perfect list, a total list or anything like that, but it's a, it's a general list that, that we have of things that are tricks in the bag of Satan. Because when he shoots and volleys those arrows, what, we're, what we need to do is know the battleground. What are the areas of my life that he wants me to seed ground in? What areas does he want me to back up and he'll shoot arrows into when I march forward? Because our job is to gain ground, not lose ground. And so whenever you start to, to see these areas attacked, it's not that you're doing something wrong. It's probably that you're doing something right and he wants you to stop. One is health and wealth. Job is the classic example of this. When you look at Job, first thing that Satan asked to take away from him is all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his belongings, which, by the way, includes his loved ones. And then the next thing is, Satan says, skin for skin. If I can take his health away. These are things that Satan wants to do. He will use this to try and get you to back away from the battle line. So when you have health problems, and when you have prosperity problems, where, where you know, I had this and now I've lost it, or I've, I've been trying to get this and it slipped through my hands, I, there was this promotion I was counting on. My boss even said it was mine, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. And Look, I want you to understand, that is just the devil's work. The next is, he will use our desires and passions against us. There's nothing wrong with being passionate. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and talking about marriage reminds us that, look, the sexual realm is an area where the devil has done a great deal of harm. Our emotions. Just simply, if you look over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Why does it say be angry and, and yet do not sin? God gets angry. Anger's not bad. God gets angry. But it includes the next line, right? Yet do not sin. Why? Because the temptation when your emotions get toyed with is to sin. The temptation in emotions is there. The next is glory and honor. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And then what did he do? He offered it to Jesus. Why? Because that's, that's tempting. That, would te that is tempting to lead somebody to give up the battle line of serving God so I could get this thing that is glorious. And by the way, he, he combined it with Jesus because he did it after Jesus had gone 40 days without food. That's health. Be very wary of prosperity. And then in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and he takes away the word with which, uh, which has been sown. 
Satan wants very much to distract your mind. What we've done tonight is just a mental exercise. In fact, I think preaching is a very weird job, don't you? It's, it's a strange thing. Like, what's the product, right? What's the product? When I'm done, I just said a bunch of stuff. But we thought about some things together, right? And that's what our mind is made for. So often, our minds get used for other things instead. So instead, we t- take the Word and we use the Word, which is a fountain of living water, and we extinguish the arrows of Satan. Because we understand this world is not our home, and we understand that he doesn't care about you, but your father very much does. Thank you so very much for the time. At this time, this is typically when we do an invitation. Kids come in first. Okay, that's why I ask him. He runs the show. Uh, Thank you so very much for the time. I really appreciate you uh, giving me an opportunity to speak with you.